0: Well, please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Hold on to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I want you to turn back to Luke 17. Luke 17, I'm going to read verses 26 through 30 in Luke 17. In verse 26, Jesus said, So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Before both judgments, the the worldwide flood and the destruction of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by God, before both of those judgments, people were living as if life was going to continue as it always had. As if things in the world or things in their city would just continue as they had all throughout their previous lifetime. People were eating and drinking, giving in marriage, receiving in marriage, buying and selling. As if all things were going to continue just as they had been. But judgment fell. Now we are not to be like those people. Who are living as if things will just continue in this world as they always have. We are to be people who know the future that God has foretold. We are to know what is to occur in the future in God's plan and purpose. And we are to live in light of the future. We are to let the future determine our values now for how we live now. We are to live very differently than the way that the world lives, and we see this in the book of First Corinthians. We have been seeing this. You can come back to First Corinthians seven. Paul is addressing matters of singleness, marriage, divorce, remarriage, and the underlying thought is that unlike the world, we are not to live for these things. We're not to live for marriage or for the freedoms of of singleness. We're not to live for things that are temporal. We're not to live for things that are of this earth. But we have a higher calling, as those who have been called by God to serve the living Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Our text is 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verses 25 to 31. Uh, which continues what we have been seeing in this chapter. Uh, as I read, I would ask that you would stand in honor of the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 25-31. through 31. <clears throat> Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress... It is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. This is God's holy word. Please be seated. This passage makes two points. First of all, this passage teaches us as believers to understand what are legitimate reasons not to ever marry. And it teaches us as believers to live for what is eternal. First of all, to understand what are legitimate reasons not to ever marry. Look with me at verse 25. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Note those first two words, now concerning. With these two words, the Apostle Paul signals that he's shifting his attention to something else that the Corinthians brought up in their letter. Perhaps it is something about which they asked a question. Paul began addressing matters from this letter back in verse 1. Go back to verse 1. Paul said, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. We saw that it appears that Paul is quoting from that letter, something that the Corinthians wrote to him, and then how he has been majorly qualifying that statement. He cannot let that statement stand as it is. And now here in verse 25, we have the words, now concerning the betrothed. Signaling that he's shifting his attention to something else that the Corinthians brought up in their letter. Paul says now concerning the betrothed. Literally, the virgins. If you have the ESV, you'll notice there's a footnote uh, for that word betrothed, and it says in Greek, virgins. Literally, it means the virgins. This word predominantly meant women of a marriageable age who were virgins. and In this section, Paul has in mind women who are betrothed to be married. In other words, pledged to be married. Now, the Corinthian church would know this because Paul was responding to their letter. And they would remember what they wrote to Paul. It becomes clear to us that Paul is speaking of those who are betrothed when we come to verses 36 and following. Look at verse 36. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, He will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. So, those verses make it clear that Paul has in mind uh, those who are betrothed to be married. Now, in our text, Paul brings up the subject of betrothal. He gives instruction for Christian women who are betrothed to be married. An instruction for Christian men to whom a woman has been betrothed. Betrothal was practiced by the Jews. We read in the Gospel accounts how Mary was betrothed to Joseph. How Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. Not only was betrothal practiced by the Jews, but betrothal was also practiced by the Romans. And since Corinth was a Roman city, its citizens would have practiced betrothal. Betrothal was similar to engagement in our culture. And two people will be engaged to be married. Paul says here in verse 25, Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord. Meaning that the Lord Jesus did not give any instruction regarding betrothal in the teaching that Jesus gave during His earthly ministry. Paul continues, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, what Paul is about to say is trustworthy because of the mercy that he received from the Lord Jesus Christ. What mercy does Paul have in mind? He has in mind the mercy of being appointed as Christ's apostle. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul will say, Therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. He had his apostolic ministry by the mercy of God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, the very first verse of the letter we're studying, uh, Paul started out by saying, Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. Christ's apostles were his official representatives uh, who spoke authoritatively for the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul, at the very start of his letter, indicated that he was not just writing as a fellow Christian. He is writing this letter as an apostle, as an official representative of the risen Christ. And it is this apostleship that he has in mind in our text when he says... I give my judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. He will speak of his apostleship in several other passages uh, in this this letter. Uh, He's very mindful of his apostleship. So, what he's going to say is just as authoritative as what Jesus said. His words are trustworthy, as trustworthy as Christ's words. Verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now, remaining in one's current marital status is a general principle that Paul laid down in the previous verses in this chapter. The essence of this teaching was that neither singleness nor marriage is more spiritual than the other. That a Christian is to be content with his marital status, whatever that status is. Paul has said there are advantages to being single, and there are advantages to being married. And becoming a Christian does not mean now you need to change your marital status. Now, in our text, Paul will apply this principle to the issue of betrothal, or we could say to the issue of engagement. Yet observe what Paul adds in verse 26. He adds something in verse 26 that he not mentioned previously in this chapter. He says, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Paul has not mentioned the present distress before. He brings that up here in verse 26. What is the present distress? The the word in the original language, Greek, that's been translated distress here, has two meanings. Sometimes the word means necessity. Sometimes it means distress, as it does here. It means distress four other times in the New Testament. Three of these refer to distresses that were occurring at the time of writing and could be called present distresses. So let's look at those. That could give us a good idea of what Paul has in mind here when he talks about the present distress. So first of all, I'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4. The first instance outside of our text in the New Testament where this Greek word is used with the meaning distress. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 4. The first instance where it could be called a present distress. Look at verse 4. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities. Note that word, hardships. Uh, This is translated from the same word that's translated distress in our text. Here, this this word translated hardships or it could be translated distresses uh, refers to the various hardships that Paul endured as he served the Lord. And Paul talks about various sorts of distresses. Um, there, there were the persecutions uh, that that he suffered and had to endure. Um, there, there there were the, the the very trying circumstances that he faced as he took the gospel further and, and further. Uh, he talks about being beaten. He talks about being stoned. Uh, he talks about being imprisoned. He talks, talks about being shipwrecked. He talks about being without food and so forth. All right. His, these, these hardships. Also note the word afflictions here in verse 4. Um, by great endurance in afflictions, Hardships, calamities. This word afflictions is the same word translated troubles in our text. In First Corinthians seven twenty-eight, yet those who marry will have worldly troubles or afflictions. Now turn over to Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verse ten. Here's the second instance of the Greek word for distress uh, being used with this meaning distress in a context where it speaks of a present distress. Chapter 12, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Notice again the word hardships there. I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships. Again, this word hardships is translated from the same word that's translated distress in our text. Again, it could be translated distresses here. It refers to the various hardships that Paul endured for Christ's sake, just like we saw in chapter 6, verse 4. And then turn over to the 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. This is the last instance of the Greek word for distress uh, being used with the meaning distress in a context where it refers to present distress distress 1st Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 7 verse 7 Paul says for this reason brothers in all our distress and affliction we have been comforted about you through your faith notice that word distress the same word as distress in our text referring to the distress Paul suffered as he served the Lord Notice again, it's coupled with the word affliction. Again, this is the same word in Greek that's translated troubles in 1 Corinthians 7.28. Yet yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. Now think about the distress, the hardship that Paul endured, uh, that he refers to in all three passages. Was the distress and hardship that Paul endured unique to him? No, that hardship, that distress was not unique to the Apostle Paul. It was the distress and hardship that Christ and His Apostles warned that Christ's disciples will have to endure until He returns. Now this distress takes different forms uh, in the lives of different believers in different times and different places. This distress occurs in various intensities uh, some experience it in greater intensity than others, uh, but this is the same sort of distress that Christ and his apostles told us that we as christ 's disciples can expect to suffer and to have to endure as we follow Christ. I believe this is the present distress that Paul speaks of in our text in 1 Corinthians 7:26. The reason for this interpretation is found in our text. Come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. What Paul says in verse 26 about the present distress is related to what he says in verse 29. In verse 29 he says, "'This is what I mean, brothers. "'The appointed time has grown very short.'" Is also related to what Paul says in verse 31b. In 31b he says, For the present form of this world is passing away. What we see here is Paul is not thinking of something specific to the Corinthian church, or to that part of the world, or to that part of church history. He says, The whole world in its present form is passing away. This is a statement that looks forward to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Paul says the time for the whole world has grown very short. In such a context, the related reference to the present distress is best understood to relate to the distress the church must endure until Christ comes for her. In 2 Timothy 3, verses 12 and 13, Paul said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then turn over to John 15 to see what Jesus said about this. In John 15, the upper room discourse, the night before Jesus departs from His disciples through the cross and the empty tomb. John 15, beginning of verse 18, let's see what Jesus said His disciples would have to endure what they would have to suffer. Jesus says in verse 18, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. This is the present distress that the apostle Paul speaks about. It is the suffering that Paul spoke of in Romans chapter 8 verses 16 through 17. When he said the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and have children and heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. It's not just the Apostle Paul who suffered distress, who suffered hardship. That's what all of us are to expect. If we are adopted children of God, we're expected that we too will suffer for Christ's sake during this time while we await the return of Christ. And Paul calls these sufferings temporary. The temporary because they will come to an end when Jesus comes again. Now come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 27. With this in mind let's reread this verse. 1 Corinthians 7 Going back to verse 26 I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Now, notice that word, wife. Are you bound to a wife? The Greek word can be translated either woman or wife. The the context determines if wife is meant or woman is meant. The NIV translates this a little differently. The NIV translates it, Are you pledged to a woman? That's a better translation. Are you pledged to a woman? Because Paul just shifted the subject to the betrothed. He shifted the subject in verse 25 to the betrothed. That's what Paul's talking about. Are you pledged to a woman? Are you pledged to be married to a woman? Paul's asking, are you and a woman betrothed to be married? Now, Paul tells such a man, do not seek to be free. In other words, do not break off the betrothal. Now, Paul is not saying, get married. He's just simply saying, don't break off the the, the, betrothal. The betrothal, stay as you are. Verse 27b, are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. I think a better translation, again, the NIV, are you free from such a commitment? The commitment of a betrothal. Are you free from such a commitment? Uh, Do not seek a wife. Paul is talking about being neither betrothed nor married. The apostle tells such a man, do not seek a wife. Verse 28. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Paul says, The man who marries a woman who has been betrothed to him does not sin, and neither does the woman who marries the man to whom she is betrothed. She does not sin by marrying. Now, this is assuming that you are marrying in the Lord. Something that Paul will make clear in verse 39. A believer is only to marry a believer. A believer is not to marry an, un- an unbeliever. That would be being unequally yoked. We're not to do that. We're to marry only in the Lord, only another believer. So that's the assumption of that is here. Paul says, those who get married do not sin. Yet, Paul says, they will have worldly troubles. And You need to understand that when you're making the decision to marry. You will have worldly troubles. Paul does not say you will have spiritual troubles, he says you will have worldly troubles. It is hard caring for a spouse and children in the midst of a hostile world. Because of the present distress that Paul referred to in verse 26, those who marry will have worldly troubles. Now currently, here in the United States, we as the church do not face the same level of opposition as Christians in Paul's day. So it is harder for us to recognize these things, but these things are still a reality. When you get married and have children, there are more mouths to feed, there are more bodies to clothe, and there's more sickness to tend to. When you travel, it's more difficult to find a place to stay. With marriage and parenting come more earthly responsibilities, and the challenges are only intensified by persecution and tribulation. Now, what is the point in this first half of our text? Here, the Apostle Paul commends singleness to those who are betrothed to be married, just as earlier he commended singleness in verses 7-8 through to the unmarried and the widows. But Paul does not require it. Paul commends singleness, not because it is an easier life, but because of the challenges that marriage adds to serving the Lord in a hostile world. Do you see the difference between the two? He's commending singleness not because it's an easier life. The Bible never commends us to do something because it's easier. Paul is commending singleness because of the challenges marriage adds to serving the Lord in a hostile world. Big difference. The apostle here is giving a legitimate reason not to seek a spouse. A legitimate reason not to ever marry. Now, understand that there are illegitimate reasons not to seek a spouse. Uh, Let me give you several illegitimate reasons not to seek a spouse. Number one, you as a man think you would not be able to be a spiritual leader. That's not a legitimate reason to decide that you're not going to get married. God has called all Christian men to be spiritual leaders. Whether we get married or we don't get married, all of us are to be spiritual leaders, meaning that we are to be discipling others. We are to be influencing other believers for the the Lord Jesus Christ. Calling others to follow us as we follow Christ. Setting an example for others to follow, So that's not a legitimate reason uh, to say, Okay, I'm not going to get married. A second illegitimate reason uh, for not seeking a spouse is that you as a woman think you would not be able to submit to a husband. Understand that if that was your reason for not seeking to get married thinking that you, as a woman, would not be able to submit to a husband, understand that that line of thinking calls into question your ability to submit to Christ. Right? Submission in marriage is submit to, wives submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. If you can submit to Christ, you can submit to a Christian husband as unto the Lord. So that's not a legitimate reason to avoid getting married. A third illegitimate reason not to seek a spouse is laziness and selfishness. Some, out of laziness and selfishness, may have no interest in getting married. Well, understand that laziness and selfishness are antithetical to the Christian life. We are called, in the call to come to Christ, we're called to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. We are to renounce selfishness. Uh, We have been called to Jesus Christ as the one who has died for us so that we would no longer live for ourselves, but now we would live for the Lord Jesus Christ. If There's laziness and selfishness that are keeping you from being interested in getting married. Understand that laziness and selfishness is not okay. As a Christian, you need to repent of all laziness and selfishness. A fourth illegitimate reason not to seek a spouse is the comfort of living with your parents. Depending on your parents, it can be quite comfortable to live with your parents especially if they provide everything that you need. And for some people, that might be a reason not to pursue marriage. I have everything I need here, living with my parents. It's comfortable here. Well, Psalm 127 likens children to arrows in a warrior's quiver. And what are arrows meant to do? They're meant to be shot out. They're not meant to stay in the quiver. God's intention is that parents will raise their children, preparing their children to go out into the world to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. God's not, intention is not that we would live for the rest of our lives underneath the authority and care of our parents. Not that we would live for the rest of our life in our parents' home but that we would go out into the world for the Lord Jesus Christ. So, the comfort of living with your parents is not a legitimate reason not to get married. Paul does give us a legitimate reason. As you're serving the Lord Jesus Christ, there will be hardships that will come from being married that will make it harder to serve Christ. And so if your ambition is to serve Christ with all of your heart, with all of your being, and you understand that getting married would would present hardships for that, that is a legitimate reason not to seek to get married. Now we saw last week that every Christian has been called by God to follow Christ, to serve Him, to live for Him. And the assumption in our text is that the believer is living out his calling. That he's living out his calling of following Christ as Lord, as Master. And he's following, living out the calling to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to live for Him. And when you're living out God's calling, a legitimate reason to not get married is the challenges it would, that would be added to serving Him in a hostile world. Well, That brings us to the second half of our text. The second half of our text teaches us to live for what is eternal live for what is eternal look with me at verse 29 in our text this is what i mean brothers the appointed time has grown very short from now on let those who have wives live as though they had none note those words the appointed time has grown very short more literally the time has grown short The idea is that with the first coming of Christ and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the time until the end of the age has grown short. We are now in what the Bible calls the last days. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Apostle Peter says, as he speaks of what happened on the day of Pentecost with the pouring out of the Spirit and how those who received the Spirit were speaking of the things of God in languages that they had never learned. It was a miracle Joel said, or Peter says in Acts 2.16, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, quote, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Peter looks at what is happening and he says, This is what Joel spoke of when he said, In the last days the Lord will pour out His Spirit on all flesh. The death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ at the Father's right hand has placed us into the last days. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 says, But in these last days God has spoken to us by His Son. The time has grown short until the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. When this world, as we know it, will come to an end and Christ's kingdom will be consummated. Christ's coming will be accompanied by the pouring out of God's wrath on mankind. And the slaying of those who rise up against Christ. You can read of this in the book of Revelation. Much of Revelation is devoted to that. Christ will reward His followers. Paul has spoken of that in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 14. When Christ comes for us, He will reward His followers. And when Christ comes for us, the Christian will be glorified with Christ. And the Christian's body will be made imperishable and immortal. And Paul will say a lot about that in the 15th chapter of this epistle. And the saints will rule and reign with Christ then over a world that will be renewed. You can read of that in Revelation chapter 20. Throughout this epistle, Paul has an eye to this future time Go back with me to chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to show you that all throughout this letter, Paul is thinking of the future. Think of Christ's coming and what will be associated with that. What, will, what His second coming will bring about. Chapter 1 verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the second coming of Christ. So you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Christ's return is called here the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 11. Paul continues to have an eye towards the future and Christ's return. Chapter 3, verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will dis- disclose it. What day is that? It's the day of Christ, the day of Christ's return. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Go down to chapter 4, verse 5, where we see that Paul continues to have an eye towards the second coming of Christ. Chapter 4, verse (laughs) 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. When the Lord Jesus comes, go forward to chapter 6, verse 1. Chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul speaking of what will follow Christ's return. And the saints will judge the world and angels. Go forward to chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 22. Again, we see Paul has an eye to the second coming of Christ and what that will bring about. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He has accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. It talks about Christ's return, his his future coming, and he goes all the way to the eternal state. Then go forward to verse 50. Verse 50. Well-known verses. I tell you, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you, a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. For telling Christ's second coming and how we will be glorified with Christ. Our body will be made imperishable, immortal, and no longer subject to death. Now, with all of this in mind, let's go back to chapter 7 and reread verse 29. We've seen that Paul has an eye throughout this epistle to the second coming of Christ. And the results of that... And here in our text, in verse 29, Paul says, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now, that may be puzzling to you. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. What does Paul mean? Well, he does not mean, Husbands, ignore your wife. Back in verses three through four, Paul said the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that her mar- that's her marital rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. It's very clear: husbands and wives have responsibilities towards one another, and we are to freely uh, fulfill those responsibilities towards one another. Think about what Ephesians five twenty two and following instructs to husbands and wives. Ephesians five twenty two wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its saviour. There are no true contradictions in Scripture. All of the Bible is the very Word of God, the the, the truth of God inerrant. If this was merely a human book, we'd expect there to be contradictions. We'd expect there to be inconsistencies. But there are no true inconsistencies in Scripture. There are no true contradictions. What Paul instructs one place, he's not going to contradict somewhere else. So what does Paul mean here in our text When he says in verse 29, From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. He means that we are to live with the awareness that marriage is temporary. Back in Luke chapter 20, verses 34 to 36, Jesus said to the Sadducees, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. After the resurrection, there will be no giving and receiving in marriage. Glorified bodies will not be bodies that will get married. Marriage was designed only for this world, not for the next. Paul is saying, do not make marriage what you live for. Because marriage belongs to a world that is on its way out. The time is short before Christ will come for us and we will give an account to him. And when we give an account to our Lord Jesus Christ, he is not going to ask us, did you get married? Rather, we will have to give an account for how we served Christ in whatever situation we were in, in whatever marital status we were in. Did we serve Christ? Not, did you get married? The apostle is instructing us in our text to live for what will matter when we stand before our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. And so if you are married, marriage marriage is to be about serving Christ Christ not about pursuing your dream. For some people in the world, marriage is about pursuing their own personal dream. If you are a Christian and you are married, marriage is to be about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are single, being single is to be about serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. In your mind, I want you to fill in the blank in the following sentence. For me, to live is blank. How would you fill that in? For me, personally, to live is blank. Some people would say, for me to live is being happily married. But the Christian should be able to say with the Apostle Paul... Philippians Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. It's Christ. Paul says here in our text, in verse 29b, From now on let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. Now notice Paul does not say, do not mourn. Do not rejoice. Rather, he says, those who mourn should live as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice should live as though they were not rejoicing. We we are instructed to mourn and to rejoice. In Romans 12.15, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What does our text mean? Our text means that we are to mourn and rejoice with the awareness that many of the things that we mourn or rejoice over are temporal Part of a world that is on its way out. Now, we mourned earlier this week when we received the news that our, our sister in Christ was hit by a car and fractured her pelvis in multiple places. We mourned over that. That's temporary. There's going to be a resurrection body. It's not going to be subject to fractures. All right. We rejoice today That the Lord provided Robert and Nerissa with an apartment that we prayed for last week. That's temporary. That apartment is just a temporary home. Our eternal home is in heaven. We are to mourn and rejoice with the understanding that the things of this world are fleeting. You and I are not to mourn and rejoice over such things as if they were ultimate, but rather we are to set our affections on what is eternal. The world sets their affections on things that are temporal. The world sets their affections on things that are of this earth, and they mourn and they rejoice in an appropriate way for making that ultimate. But we are to mourn and rejoice as those whose affections are set on what is eternal. Eternal. Coming back to our text, verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods. Gordon Fee, a well-respected commentator on 1 Corinthians, translates this well. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. All right. Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Now, it has been said that you never see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. All right. We need to be reminded of that. When you die, you're not going to take any of these earthly goods along with you. You leave it all behind. It's temporal. It's fleeting. Our text instructs you and me to live with the awareness that that what matters is not um, what we possess in this world, but what matters is what we will possess in eternity. The world lives as if what they possess now is what matters. Reality is what we will possess in eternity is what really matters. And Paul is calling us to live accordingly. You will shop differently depending on where your values lie. If your values lie here, in this life, this world, this time, then what you put in that shopping cart is going to be one thing. But if you value eternity, you value Christ, and living for Christ, and Christ's words when you stand before Him, and you have to give an account to Him, then what you put in that shopping cart is going to look different. Think about these things when you go to the mall. Think about what Paul says here. From now on, let those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who use the things of the world as... I'm sorry... Those who buy something as if it was not theirs to keep. Let's continue in our text. Verse 29 again. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. Verse 31. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Gordon Fee translates again, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. While you and I live in this world, we are not to make this world our home. We are to live in the world with the recognition that, as Philippians 3.20 says, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reason that we are to live this way is given to us in verse 31b, Look at verse 31b. For the present form of this world is passing away. Now note that Paul does not say for the present form of this world will pass away in the future. No, he says the present form of this world is passing away. As we speak, the present form of this world is passing away. And soon that will be complete. Have you ever gone to a play Maybe a, a Broadway play, um, perhaps sight and sound, where the sets on stage turn around when the scene changes. So you know, the, the, there's the scene, uh, there's the, the set for the current scene. The scene comes to an end, and then you see the whole set rotate, and the next scene or the next the next set is on the backside of the first set, and so you you see the set for the current scene. You just see it. Uh, fade fade away Paul says the present form of this world is like a set in a play that is already going off stage it's already turning it's already fading away it's already happening now we read something similar elsewhere in the New Testament. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 15-17, through 17, we read, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and, the, and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever." Again, the same sort of thing. The world is passing away. Second Peter chapter three, verses 10 through 13. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We live in a world that will be burned up one day, and will be replaced with a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. In our text, the Apostle is saying Marriage belongs to the present form of this world which is passing away. Many of the things that we mourn or rejoice over belong to the present form of this world which is passing away. The goods we buy belong to the present form of this world which is passing away. The world with which we deal is passing away. And so we are not to place ultimate value on these things. We are to place a greater value on the world that will be eternal we are to now live for the Eternal One, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The One with whom we will dwell for all of eternity. And this is what this whole chapter, Romans or 1 Corinthians 7, is about. This underlies what Paul has been instructing throughout this chapter. Well, let me ask you, in light of all that we have seen in God's Word this morning... Brothers and sisters, what is ultimately molding your life? What is ultimately molding what your mind dwells upon? What is ultimately molding the way that you live at work, the way that you live at home, the way that you you live when you rest, the way that you, li- you live when nobody's watching? What ultimately is molding your life? Is it the things of this world that are molding your life? Or is it Christ who is molding your life? What are you living for? Practically, when it really comes down to it, are you living for the things of this world? Or are you living for the Lord Jesus Christ? Gordon Feast did it well when he wrote, Those who have a definite future and see it with clarity live in the present with radically altered values as to what counts and what does not. If you recognize that it is not Christ who is ultimately molding your life and for whom you are living, then I urge you, brothers and sisters, go to Christ right now about it. Confess that to Him. Confess to Him that you are wrong for letting your life be molded by the things of this world rather than by Him. Acknowledge to Christ that, that, that you are, are wrong for your life being lived for the things of this world rather than for Christ. Confess that to Him as sin. Confess that to Him as rebellion against Him. And ask for His forgiveness and ask for His grace to, to be transformed by the Holy Spirit through the Scriptures. That you might live a life that is shaped by Christ. That you might live for Christ in all things. If you do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then this passage in God's Word that we have studied should alarm you. Verse 29 says that the appointed time has grown very short. This world is coming to an end. This age is coming to an end. Verse 31 says, The present form of this world is passing away. The Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. And when Jesus Christ comes again to this earth, He will judge the living and the dead. All will one day have to stand before the resurrected, exalted Christ. His resurrection on the third day is the Father's declaration that Jesus is the one whom God has appointed to be the judge of the living and the dead. And how will you fare when you stand before Jesus Christ as your judge? He's not going to judge you by the world's standards, He's not going to judge you by your own personal standards. He's going to judge you by the holy law of God Almighty. And God does not require 25% obedience. God requires 100% obedience to His whole law. Not just an outward obedience, but an an obedience from the heart. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. That all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned against God. That all need salvation from sin we would have no hope if we do not know Jesus Christ as our Savior who died for our sins at Calvary. We would have no hope when we stand before Jesus Christ as the judge. If we stand in our works, if we stand in our deeds, we'd stand guilty before Him. And a just judge must render a just judgment. Our just Lord Jesus Christ will send to hell all whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. The just judge will send into hell all except for those who have been saved by His blood shed at Calvary. Because the books that God keeps shows that we are transgressors of the law not keepers of God's law. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus Christ, who one day will be the judge of the living and the dead, He came first in a humble form. He came as the Redeemer. He came as the Savior. He came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. The Gospel is the good news that this holy God who created you and me to whom we are accountable for everything that we do and think and say. This holy God in love sent his own son into this world who became a man through the the miracle of the, the, the virgin conception. Came into this world through the miracle of the incarnation. He became a man. He became human. He became one of us. And he lived in perfect obedience to the law of God. He obeyed God in his heart, in his ambitions, in his motives, in the meditation of his his, his heart, in his speech, in his conduct. He only did the will of his Father. He obeyed the law perfectly on our behalf. He did for us what we could never do. And having obeyed the Father completely, having obeyed the law of God completely, he then laid down his life as the atoning sacrifice for God's people. He died upon the cross, not because he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He didn't die on the cross ultimately because the Jews hated him and wanted to put him to death, and the Romans were willing to do it. He died because Jesus laid down his life as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. He died because the Father sent Christ to be the propitiation for our sins. And there upon the cross, Jesus died in the place of sinners. He died in the place of rebels. He paid the penalty that we deserve for our sin. He paid that penalty in full. He said those words upon the cross, it is finished. To die in the original language. The word that you would put on a On a receipt to mark that it was paid in full. There's no hope if you have to work your way into a right relationship with God. But what we could never do for ourselves, Jesus did for us. He paid for all of our sins upon the cross. He was buried on the third day. He rose from the grave in victory. The Father's declaration that He had accepted the Son's sacrifice. The Father's declaration that this one whom He raised is who He claimed to be. He is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the Savior of the world. Jesus appeared alive to over 500 of His disciples over a period of 40 days. And He ascended to the right hand of the Father in the sight of His disciples. And Jesus Christ has sent forth the gospel through His apostles. It's given to us in the New Testament. And the gospel calls upon every man, woman, boy, and girl to repent of your sin, to to turn from your sin, to forsake your sin, to turn from your sin to Jesus Christ. To believe in Him as your personal Savior from sin. To believe in Him as your Lord, to submit your life to Him in faith. To follow Him as your master the rest of your days. And the gospel promises forgiveness of sins. A gift of a right standing with God. Promises eternal life to the one who repents of their sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and following, For by grace we have been saved through faith. And this, not of ourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God created in advance for us to do. I urge you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I urge you to come to Jesus Christ today in repentance, in faith. Believing the gospel. And you will be saved. You will receive the Holy Spirit. He will give you a new heart to replace your heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. He will come within to live within you. To transform you more and more each day. To be more and more like Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit will be a guarantee. That God will complete this work. In glorifying you one day when you see Christ, that you will be like him because you will see him as he is. Your body will be raised a glorified body, and you will be forever with the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says the point of time has grown very short. He says the present form of this world is. Passing away. Today is the day of salvation. Do not delay coming to the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not delay seeking to understand and believe the gospel. Do not delay. Come to Christ. And he will not turn away any who come to him. As believers, we are challenged by this passage. and We must examine ourselves to see in our day-to-day living, what are we living for? Are we just following right along with the world and living for the things that the world lives? Or are we living for Christ? We're living for what is eternal, in the place where we've been called, in the place where God has us. Are we living for Christ? May the Lord give us His grace to live for Christ, to serve Him, to worship Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank You for this passage of Scripture that has reminded us that the things that this world lives for, the things of this life, are temporal. They're passing away. Oh Lord, May we be people who live by your grace for what is eternal, who live for the eternal one. We pray in his name. Amen.